This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Luke chapter 9. This morning, we asked the question, how much time are you spending with Jesus? Tonight, I want to ask the question, who is Jesus to you? Who is he really to you? I think theologically, we would all have the same answer. He is the Son of God, Messiah, went to the cross, rose from the dead after his death. He's reigning uh, at the right hand of the Father and interceding for us. We can give textbook answers. And certainly we are blessed because we have the textbook. We have the Word of God. We have it better than most of humanity in the 6,000 plus years that men have walked on this earth. We've taken time as we've prepared for the Lord's table uh, over the months and now the years to reflect on what people understood about Christ, about Messiah. We saw from Hebrews that Moses had a far greater understanding of the work of Messiah than I think we give him credit for. Uh, and, and his work leading Israel out of uh, Egypt and into a place where they could enter the promised land. Of course, he anticipated that he'd be the one leading uh, them in until his uh, angry failure. But then the scripture tells us that what you and I have common knowledge of, the prophets desired to look into. They made prophecies. Again, they had a basic understanding of what Messiah's work would be. but They didn't understand it completely. Christ's work is so important that scripture tells us even the angels look into this. They've gotten to watch from there as all of God's redemptive plan unfolds. But who is Jesus to you? My concern, and our concern should be, that Jesus can be so, become so common to us that he becomes just another figure in history or in our minds. We must not let that happen. And so who is Jesus to you? We could ask this, who is Jesus to the disciples? They walked with him. They saw him as he ate and slept and prayed. Uh, and they even, though they acknowledged he was the Christ, even sometimes their responses to him uh, were not what they should have been as they were walking with the Creator God. And so we have in Luke chapter 9 an incident that happens that only three disciples got to see. The rest of them learned about it later. But it was so important for those three, and then they shared it with the others later, to have a right perspective of Jesus Christ. And that's what we know in the scripture as the transfiguration. 
So let's set the context for that event and what really took place there. Luke 9.27 ends the previous context, the section uh, in Luke's gospel, where Jesus is instructing his disciples about the kingdom. And you'll see this in verse 27, where it says, But I tell you the truth, Jesus speaking, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. Now in this same context, you have the matter of confession uh, for them, that Jesus uh, tells them, or, or Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, let me back up. You have a matter that Jesus tries to clear up, their confusion about why he's here. If you look at verse 22, Jesus makes it very clear to his disciples. He says this, the Son of Man shall suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be what? Slain and be raised the third day. Now the disciples hear this, but they don't hear this. They begin to understand it as Jesus repeats it, and Jesus says, we're going to go up there, and, and, and even Peter says, no, that's not going to happen. I'm going to stop that. So Jesus tries to clear up the confusion about why he is there. Without the completed word of God we possess, we would probably have been confused by this as well. So the Lord allows the inner circle to witness the divine glory while hearing the Father say, listen to what my Son is telling you. And I'm obviously paraphrasing. Here's my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Now in this text, Peter confesses, Lord, you're the Christ. Jesus tells them what He's going to do. But immediately following this, is the transfiguration. I believe we need to understand this text to be reminded of who the Lord's table represents, as well as what God's Son did for us to provide for our departure from earth into our eternal home. I've entitled the message tonight, Christ Transfigured, and that's the idea of Christ glorified in our minds. Christ transfigured in our minds. He needs to be exalted in your mind. We need to remember that the one who died on the cross for us is none other than God, the Almighty, creator of you and me in this universe. The fact he's a man walking on earth in human weakness. And he was tested in all points as we are. He knows our infirmities. The fact that all that is true doesn't change the fact he's God. And he needs to be reverenced that way. And the transfiguration was meant to help the disciples understand that. So look with me now at verse 28. And it came to pass about eight days after these sayings, and that's the context I just gave you, Peter's confession of Christ, verse 20. Jesus' declaration of his death and resurrection, verse 22. After these days, these things were uttered, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. 
Now the other Gospels tell us what mountain that is because it is right next to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Mount Hermon is right next to that city, that Roman city. Verse 29, and as he prayed, the time for Jesus' passion, his work in Jerusalem, his death, resurrection, that was approaching. The fashion of his countenance was altered. So the Lord is praying and his face changes, his countenance changes. Now how does it change? Well, Matthew 17, 2 tells us that his face shined like the sun. Wow. Don't ever do this, but as a child, did you try to look up into the sun? Uh, that was one of, the dumb, one of many dumb things I did. Okay. Just, uh, how, can, I, can I look at it? That is how his countenance changed. By the way, a parallel to what happened with the Lord as he is praying there, the, the equivalent would be what we see Jesus, how he's represented uh, as he walks among the candlesticks in Revelation 2 and 3, those churches. Remember the brilliance of, uh, of his, his uh, countenance, uh, his, his, his glory as it's represented there. And so... His countenance was altered, and his raiment as white was white and glistening. So we need to remember the one who died for you and me is not just another man. He is the God-man who had at his command the ability to glorify himself. And then he also has his command, the assistance of any of the Old Testament saints who have already died and gone to heaven. That's who he is. That's who he is here. In fact, on the cross, Scripture reminds us uh, he could have called 10,000 angels to assist him. That's who he is as God. And so verse 30 says, And behold, there talked with him two men, and then the Lord identifies, the text identifies, the Holy Spirit, who these men are, which were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. Now, they're glorified forms, no longer on this earth, they've died, they're with the Lord, they're in the form of all the saints in glory. And notice what they're talking to the Lord about and spoke of his decease. They're talking about his death. Now let's pause for a moment and, and take a closer look. That word decease is the Greek word exodon. Exodus, do you recognize that word in there? Exit, okay. His exodus or departure from earth to heaven. Uh, the Latin form of this word is where we get our word decease, and that's how the King James translators uh, translate it here. His going away, that's what they were talking about, his departure, which he should accomplish, this, the verse goes on to say, at Jerusalem. 
And we're going to talk in a little bit. Why are they talking about that? Why are they discussing that? But note here, Jesus' decease was the model for what our decease will be. Jesus, when he accomplished his work, had an exodus. He exited his going away from earth to heaven. That's what they were discussing. Now, Peter understands this later. He doesn't understand it at this moment, but he understands later the significance of this transfiguration because our Lord's exodus is really the very same fashion in which he's going to take us and help us in our exodus away from this earth. I wish we had time tonight to talk about that, but remember, in the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that he is the first fruits. All right? Uh, his, his resurrection, and we're going to be raised like him, but his exodus is what our exodus will be. Because of him. Hold your place here and go over to Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 15. And this is the exciting application that Peter makes based upon what he witnessed those years before here at Mount Hermon as he witnesses the transfiguration. Second Peter chapter 1 and see verse 15. Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able after my decease, same word, my decease, my exodus, to have these things always in remembrance. When I'm gone, when I've exited, remember this. For we have not followed cunning, cunningly devised fables. In other words, I'm not making this up. When we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You know what that's a reference to? Same thing, the transfiguration. So he looks back to the transfiguration and he says, look, my decease, my exodus is coming too. And, and understand, we're not making this up. We witness the transfiguration. And again, he's just helping them understand. I'm going to have that, that exodus. You're going to have that exodus as well. And notice now, uh, again, Jesus is here with Moses and Elijah. Why did they meet with Jesus? Why those two? We know they're discussing the Lord's exodus, his decease, which would include his death and his resurrection. But why those two? This is significant. Moses and the prophets represented here by Elijah. Remember that Moses and the prophets declared God's redemptive plan through Messiah before the New Testament was ever written. Could someone come to know Messiah personally by what Moses and the prophets had written? Yes or no? Absolutely. The Old Testament saints looked at that truth, put their faith in the Lord, and were saved. 
They were looking ahead to the coming of Messiah. So a soul could be saved by believing the divine message of Moses and the prophets. Here's further proof. You'll remember the story in Luke 16 of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus dies and he's carried to Abraham's bosom. He's carried to, carried to paradise. The rich man also dies and the Bible says in hell he lifted up his eyes. There's a great gulf between them and he says, he sees Abraham over there and he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Of course, he wants to be delivered from that torment. But then he also says this, would you send, the, uh, send Lazarus back so that he can witness to my brothers so that they'll be saved and not come to this place. Abraham's response is interesting. He says they have Moses and the prophets. And if they're not going to believe Moses and the prophets, they won't be saved even if somebody came back to them from the dead. Now why Moses and the prophets, along with what they wrote, pointing to the coming work of Messiah, the promise of God. Moses is also significant because he led the exodus out of Egypt, which pictures the saints' exodus from the bondage of sin through the Red Sea and included the death of that which held them in captivity, Pharaoh and his army. What a picture that is. And I, I smile every time I hear that it's the Red Sea. You and I, to be delivered from the bondage of sin, uh, we need to go through the blood of Christ. It's a miraculous deliverance. And when we're saved, God puts to death that which held us in bondage. The old man is put to death. Sin shall therefore have no power over you. That's what the scripture says. And so Moses led that effort, and of course Moses was the human instrument used to write the Pentateuch, and you think about all the things that the first five books of our Bible point to about the redemptive work of the coming Messiah. Now what about Elijah? Well, he is representative of all the prophets, how is that the case? Well, consider these things. First, what he spoke came to pass, so he was a true prophet. Number two, what he prayed came to pass. You remember the contest on Mount Carmel? He kneels down and he prays and asks God to send fire from heaven. Does it happen? Never was there that kind of fire from heaven. Well, there were other times, but... But when you have fire that comes from heaven and even burns up the stones, that's fire. And so the Lord answered there. By the way, that wasn't the only time that Elijah prayed down fire from heaven. You'll remember later then, 2 Kings chapter 1, uh, a king sends uh, groups of soldiers out, bands of 50 to arrest Elijah and bring him in. He's sitting on a big rock and and these uh, cocky commanders walk up and say, hey, you, get down here. And he says, if I'm the prophet of God, let him rain down fire. Fire comes and consumes the whole group. Well, the king doesn't uh, quit. He sends another group of 50. 
And that guy, he got, he's, he, he's bossy and, he, hey, you, get down here. Elijah says, if I'm a prophet of God, let their fire come down from heaven. Consumes that group. So the king sends a third guy. Now, he's, he's a smart commander. <laughs> Elijah, can you help me out here? Uh, can you, and, and Elijah goes with him, all right? They all get to survive, but what a prophet. Just a human instrument. James refers to Elijah as a man of like passions as we, but he prayed and God answered. God answered mightily. Third, Elijah is significant because he destroyed false religion in Israel. Remember Baal worship, Ahab and Jezebel? And what also happened on Mount Carmel? After God consumed that altar with fire, all the prophets of Baal were slain. Later God will say to Elijah after he flees, you remember they had a weak moment, uh, fled uh, into the wilderness. And after God restores him down there, God tells him, tells this prophet, now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to eliminate the house of Ahab, and here's how I'm going to do it. And he makes all these predictions, and in the coming chapters, they all come uh, to pass. Finally, Elijah was shown the honor of the office by being caught up in a chariot of fire. No other prophet got to experience that. You realize there was a rapture that happened in the Old Testament. Well, there were a couple. Enoch had one. Uh, but Elijah, and it was witnessed by Elisha. Uh, a chariot comes roaring through, a chariot of fire through the, the Jordan Valley, and off the prophet goes. Leaves his cloak behind. But God put his stamp of honor on all the prophets by what he did for that prophet when he caught him up. And as a result of all these things, Elijah becomes the model of the forerunner of Jesus. Turn with me to the last book of your Old Testament. Let's take a look at Malachi chapter 4. This is before, as one Bible commentator, this is before Radio Heaven goes off the air. And we have those hundreds of of years, uh, 300 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And notice what the Lord predicts through Malachi, Malachi 4 and verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children unto their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse." That's significant, and go now to Luke's gospel again. Just go to Luke chapter 1, and notice what verse 17 says. Luke 1, 17. This is predicting John the Baptist, but who is John going to be like? He shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, Elijah 
to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So the angel is saying to Zacharias, who's, gonna, who's the father of John the Baptist, your son is going to be the forerunner and he's going to be like Elijah. And of course, that was true in many ways, including how John the Baptist dressed and so forth. Now, why were Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus? That's an important question. Having been to heaven, they now fully understand their purpose, the purpose for which they were on earth. That's wonderful. They, they saw through a glass darkly here. They, they didn't understand all that God was doing. They understood the gist of it. But when they get to heaven, it's fully explained. Now they get it. And God had sent them now to strengthen the heart of our Savior as he was agonizing in prayer about his approaching death. Why was he praying? It was because of that. Imagine being in a human body, but having the mind of God because you're God and having full understanding of what's going to happen to you when you get Jerusalem, to, to Jerusalem. Would that weigh heavy on you? Aren't you thankful God didn't show you all of the rest of your future? But Jesus knew it. He knew every part of it as God. No one on earth understood what Jesus faced. And so Moses and Elijah came at his request. This also gave the three disciples who were chosen to accompany Jesus a glimpse of his glory for the difficult hours of darkness that were coming. Why is it so important then that Christ be transfigured, glorified in our minds? Well, without understanding biblical truth, watch how the human mind can miss spiritual significance, especially as it relates to our Lord and why he came. I believe that this is the essence to why the Lord says that we are to remember regularly his table. It can be something that just gets pushed to the back of my, our, our minds. We don't think of it with the gravity and the, and the respect that we should, the reverence. Look at verse 32. All this has happened, a day that these disciples will never forget, but Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, perhaps by the glory that was in the conversation Jesus was having with Moses and Elijah, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass as they departed from him. And it seems to happen pretty quickly here. They wake up, they see the glorified Lord. These two men are standing there. I think later they come to understand who these two are. The Lord probably told them. But Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elijah. You see what he just did? 
let's set up three different, and these, these are literal uh, tabernacles. It takes our minds back to the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, the disciples didn't have any construction materials with us, uh, with them. And so let's just construct three booths here in honor of you and these two other men. Peter, you don't get it. Those men weren't here to get honor to themselves. In fact, they weren't here on the first round to get honor to themselves. All the honor needs to go to one, and he's the one that was just glorified in your presence, in your sight. I think at this point Jesus had to hold back. Peter, you've just seen me in my glorified state is God. And, and what did you just say? But Jesus doesn't have to say anything. Instead, God the Father speaks. Wow. How, what happens then? While they spake. Oh, by the way, the, the, again, the passage says, and this is Luke writing under, under inspiration about Peter, says, not knowing what he said. He didn't know what he was talking about. Verse 34, while he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them. So Peter says this. I, I can just see the Lord looking at him, and all of a sudden, this cloud rolls in. They feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. Listen to what he is trying to tell you. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone. I'm sure there were discussions by the disciples and their followers later about what happened there. But you know, immediately, they didn't just go back and, and tell the others what had happened. In fact, they kept it close and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. I think at that point, Peter realized I don't even completely understand what I've seen. And he just kept it in. These others kept it in. They processed it. And then there was a day when their eyes were opened about what Jesus had come to do. His, he's, he's finished redemption's work on the cross. He's risen again. And they start putting all this together. And oh yeah, the transfiguration. This is what he was trying to show us. So what's the application as we close tonight? Ultimately, Peter wanted Jesus memorialized by the experience that Peter had witnessed at Mount Carmel. I, I, look, I got to see Moses. I got to see Elijah. And, and Jesus was there too. No, 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 no. wasn't about the experience. It's not what I saw. It's now what I understand because I saw the glorified Savior. And Jesus is to be glorified for who he is. 
for his infinite grace and love that he demonstrated to us as God at Calvary. What wondrous love and grace from the glorified Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, as the writer of Revelation says, the Almighty. So as we gather at the table tonight, I, I want us to focus on the fact, yes, God sent a substitutionary lamb to die on the cross and shed his blood for my wretched sin. But who did he send? God came down. Creator came into our weakness. And he set aside the free exercise of his divinity. Whatever he did, he did through the power of the Spirit of God. He entered our weakness and he went to the cross and suffered. But right here in his earthly ministry, three disciples got to be reminded, he is Lord. Glorified God. Even as the Savior in human form, he still occupies eternity and he knew everything that was happening out there and he commanded what is going on in heaven and he was in control of what was happening here even in the giving of himself to be our sacrifice. Does that make gratitude swell in your heart? It should. That's who walked up Calvary's mountain and who died there for you and me. So let's gather at his table now and let's give him thanks in light of who Jesus is, transfigured in Scripture. And may God use this text to cause him to be glorified in our minds. Father, tonight, thank you for sending your Son, co-equal with the Father, who is God, but Emmanuel, God with us. And Lord Jesus, thank you for that day. Only three disciples witnessed it. But Lord, you stood there with Moses and Elijah representing the prophets, and they bore testimony as well to your greatness because all that they wrote, all that they did pointed to your coming to finish salvation for us. So Lord, as we gather at your table tonight, help us to give thanks, to give reverent thanks. Lord, we shouldn't take this lightly. We shouldn't be flipping about it. Lord, it shouldn't be routine to us. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you grip our minds and our hearts and would you work in us the love and gratitude that we should have for the Son. Bless our time at, at your table. Thank you for this ordinance. Thank you for what it pictures. And Lord Jesus, we love you for inviting us to your table tonight. I ask these things now in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. 
If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.